Today's program has been brought to you by Calavita. Think outside the bottle with Calavita, America's trusted family brand, makers of extra virgin olive oil and fine Italian food products. Calavita.com. It's Michael Lemecker here, Food Talk. We are live today, and it's 420. That's a magic day. 420 is a magic day. Um, I don't know when this whole thing started, but 420, for some reason, is National Weed Day. Do you know why? I, I believe it's a, a reference to the, the popo. It's the code that they use. Oh, really? 420 is the, yeah, when, when it goes down on the radios, that's what it is. There's a 420... Simple Bushwick, it's going down. Well, they don't even do that. Anyway, anyway, so I used to do broadcast radio on a broadcast station, and they wouldn't let me do a 420 show back then because they were all pretty conservative, the people that own WOR. But now we're, now we're out in Bushwick, and it's, we're freestyling. So I'm going to devote the, basically the entire show today, except the last interview, to, um, to weed. That's right, just like Vice is doing this week. Seems like Vice is doing that, period. And I have a mystery guest in studio who's going to go unnamed. He's a mystery guest. Hello, Mr. Guest. I, I think I should choose my name today. Choose your name. I'd like to be Henry. Henry. We have Henry's. I'm writing it down so I don't forget. Henry is my mystery guest. Henry. Because um, he is in the business and he's local. And it's funny. I, I don't think they have 420s anymore because, man, I live in the Lower East Side and it's just everyone's smoking weed down there. Like you oh, just oh, walk yeah. down the street and it's like, I'm on a bicycle all the time. It's just like, yeah, it's, it's just like there is no, no big deal. De facto legalized. Basically, in New York City, it seems to me. All right. Anyway, let's go to guest number one. We have her on the telephone. She's live from Los Angeles. She is a trained chef. She is a, uh, an author of many, many books, including two on weed, one called The Cannabis Gourmet Cookbook, and the other one's called Mary Jane, The Complete Marijuana Handbook for Women. I'm not sure why. I'm going to find out in a minute why it is just for women. And she has a blog called Cannabis Sherry, C-H-E-R-I.com. Sherry Sicard. Sherry, how are you? Great. Nice to be here, and thanks for having me, but i got to correct one thing. Tell me. The 420 reference is absolutely wrong. <laughs> it, is, it has nothing to do with the popo. So what is it? What is the 420? <laughs> well, we were guessing. We didn't know. We know. We make mistakes. What is yeah. it? Uh, it actually comes from a group of students in Center Hill, I think back in the 70s, that used to meet every day at 420 to have a smoke fish, and it grew from there, and... <laughs> Now we have the Stoner Holiday. So wait a minute. So it was the 1970s, and it was a group of like high school kids that met after school. I think I don't know if it was high school or college students. Yeah, that met at 4:20 at a certain place every day. What the yeah, hell? Yeah. I'm I'm old enough to yeah. a remember that, and it, 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 that didn't stop us. We didn't wait till 4:20. I, I think every guest is going to have a different story. <laughs> every guest can have a different story. So tell me, you also do. You came across my radar because you also write pieces. Uh, for High Times Magazine, which is another magazine that I'm guessing it launched in the 70s, right? Uh, yes, I believe it did. Uh, it's one of the longest-running marijuana publications. So, yeah, I'm really proud to write for them, as well as my own blog and my books. And I teach people how to cook with cannabis. I have an online cooking course that teaches home cooks how to t- uh, cook with cannabis. And so I'm very involved in edibles and have been writing for High Times as well as uh, a frequent judge for the Cannabis Cup competitions, especially in edibles. Damn, that's got to be some job. 
I got, I got to get on that list. I got to get on that list. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. So how do you? So it's actually very challenging because you have a short amount of time, and depending on the contest, you have quite a bit of edibles to test. So you must have a monster tolerance for one thing. Get action, Bronson. He's available. I think. I think he can handle that. That's right. So, so what? So 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 your 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 web series and and the uh, the blog. So mm-hmm. so you're in L.A. where pot's legal. Is that correct? It's basically legal. Yeah, we've had it legal. We were the first state to legalize for uh, medicinal use back in 1996, and we just legalized for recreational, although we don't have any uh, dispensaries selling it yet. That infrastructure is still being put into place. Right. You got Jerry Brown out there, and I don't think Jeff Sessions wants to F with California, or you'll just take off on your own. I hope not. <laughs> Seventh <laughs> biggest economy in the world says yeah. goodbye, United States. We, we like it. We, we way to go. So what are people, how are people cooking with, are they actually buying cannabis in, in leaf bud form and cooking with it, or are they buying something else and cooking with it? You know, all of the above, and it really depends on the individual. And a lot of people are growing their own, so if you are growing your own, you almost can't afford not to cook with uh, the trimmings and things like that. But for those who aren't growing their own, they are often buying shake, uh, which is kind of like the equivalent, uh, the marijuana equivalent of the crumbs at the bottom of a bag of potato chips. Uh, It's still very potent, but often less expensive if your dispensary offers that. They also will cook with concentrate like keef and hash and hash oils, which are easy. Uh, dry ice keef is one of my personal favorite things to cook with. It's, it can be a powdery substance that you can uh, dissolve into foods. So they're cooking with a lot of different things. Uh, the backbone of a lot of recipes is infusing the marijuana into a butter or an oil and then using that in your recipe. So depending on what you want to make, uh, there's a lot of different methods, and that's one of the things I teach is it so much more than just cookies and brownies. Uh, I have a lot of great brownie recipes on my site, but you can medicate almost any recipe uh, if you know the principles of how to cook with marijuana, which is what I teach. Yeah, we've got a we've got a baker on from Colorado. She's going to be on the show in I think she's guest number three. Um, mm-hmm. Who does all sorts of stuff, like you know, croissant eclairs, olive oil bars, just like a like a full line of like normal pastries. So we're, I, don't, I actually don't think she does brownies, but and and I think exactly. She, and you can do savory things too. And a lot of the recipes in my books uh, and on my website are for savory things. And it's actually, I think, easier to kind of hide that flavor that a lot of people don't like in a savory recipe or in something like a pizza with the works that has a lot of texture and flavor going on. So. There's really techniques if you're uh, taking this up as a hobby, and a lot of people are as more states are legalizing. Um, there are techniques you can use to get better flavors and to really customize the dose for exactly what you what, need. What are There's your favorite flavors? To making your own. What are your favorite flavors to pair up with um, marijuana? Well, if you want to really get sophisticated with it, and there are a lot of chefs, especially in cities like L.A., that are doing this, um, cannabis actually shares terpenes with a lot of foods, so you can pair up the strain of marijuana you have with certain foods. For instance, a strain that's high in myrcene will pair well with mangoes, or uh, a strain that's high in pining will do well with rosemary. So, like, I have a New Orleans barbecue shrimp that has a lot of garlic and rosemary, and it really blends in well to where you don't notice the flavor of the cannabis. So for people who really want to get sophisticated with this, and I actually have a lot of chefs in uh, 
culinary professionals that take my class because they do want to add this to their repertoire. You can really get sophisticated with it, and there are chefs now that are doing uh, gourmet multi-course dinners here that are infused, and it's a really wonderful night out where you're getting course after course, and they're infused very lightly, so you, you know the goal is not to have anybody pass out by the end of the night, but you're getting a little bit of infusion in the various courses, and the chefs are matching the terpenes in the marijuana to the food, so for foodies, it's really interesting, and that's the future of cannabis cuisine, I would say. So there's actually chefs in live standing restaurants like brick-and-mortar places where they'll have a section of the menu or specials on the menu that have weed in them. Um, not in restaurants. That's no. not legal for the use it's of private legal. events, okay. uh, either for private parties or dinners where all the people are patients and members of the Chef's Collective. Um, but there are several pop-up dinners in L.A. that the public can go to like that. Um, pop Cultivate is one. Elevation VIP is another. And they're doing really amazing dinners that um, are as good as any uh, Highline restaurant, but the food is infused. How do you? My last question. We've got to run to my next guest because it's it's mm-hmm. an insane day. How do you? How do you get precise with dosage? What's like the standard? So I am a regular guy. I weigh two hundred ten pounds, stocky guy. What should my dose yeah. be? Like 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 if I was you know, drinking. That's the thing, and it's the toughest thing to talk about because there's no one right answer. Everybody processes marijuana drastically different, yeah. and really some of those factors come into play, but. You know, while 10 milligrams is too much for some people, others are going to need 100 or more. Um, I created actually a free online course that people can take on dosing to help people get more precise results. And this course will teach you how to estimate the percentage of THC and what you're cooking with. And actually, you know, without lab testing, it's as close as you can get to a pretty close per-serving dose. So, yes, you do have to figure out what your ideal dose is, and um, in my full cooking course, I teach you how to do that. But once you know what your dosing range is and what works for you, and as I said, that's very, very different for everybody, and that's why this is such a tricky subject. But once you know that, you can cook to get exactly what you need. How do we find that? And, uh, you have that on a website? Yeah, you can find that on my website at CannabisSherry.com, C-H-E-R-I, or check out the courses at uh, CannabisSherry.Teachable.com. Thanks so, so much for coming on the show, Sherry. Keep up the great work. Be well, and um, hopefully we'll talk in the future. That's Sherry Sicard, uh, again, a cookbook author, frequent contributor to High Times Magazine, and an edibles expert. We're going to move. I think we're going to move. I can't really see. Yes, I got a thumbs up, because this is really, this is kind of, it's kind of a high-tech station with kind of a low-tech um, analog <laughs> system to it. My, my next guest is on the phone, I believe, or he's going to be on the phone soon, John Whiteman, who's one of the co-owners of Juana Edibles, located in Colorado, Oregon, Nevada, Illinois, member of the Cannabis Business Alliance Edible Manufacturers Council. And there actually is such a thing. Like, who knew? But it makes sense. Who it's going to be a big business. Yeah. Um, John, are you there? I'm here, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. Where are you? Are you physically in Colorado, or are you in Oregon, Nevada, or Illinois? I am physically in Colorado, looking at the uh, gorgeous Rocky Mountains. Yeah, lucky wow. you. Yeah, it's such a beautiful state. So tell me, you started this with your wife, I guess, some time ago? Yeah, we started in 2010. A, uh, a neighbor came down to pick up their kid and said, hey, uh, I'm making infused soda pop. You want to get in? <laughs> and so we were... Uh, we were trying to evaluate some new business opportunities, and um, so we jumped in, and it's been an amazing ride. 
So seven years in, how much expansion in terms of percentage? I mean, obviously you've grown exponentially, but like from year to year, are you are you seeing growth every year? Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've gone. You know, on the people side of things, we've gone from two of us, and now we have, I guess, 87 employees. Um, I would say percentage-wise, you know, every year we're growing at the rate of, yeah, 60, 75% in terms of overall revenues. So it's been a, a, a difficult horse to keep reined in and That's control, big. but uh, we're doing it. That's big. I mean, it's, you know, it's we're here on the East Coast. We're sort of wondering when things are going to happen here. We're a little bit more conservative on this side of the country. Um, probably some more hoops to go through. But little by little, didn't Massachusetts do something recently? Wasn't it on an election? I, I believe so. so yeah. I, it's yeah. legal. It's not legal yet, but it's going to be. And Maine is. Too. And Maine is too. And then I think once you get a state near us, like Rhode Island or Connecticut, then yeah. New York's going to have is going to be losing all that revenue. Completely. Yep, we're going to have to jump into that pond. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you know, at this point, guys, you've got. Uh, You've got New York with the medical program that's a bit a bit stalled, but you know they're working on it. You've got New Jersey that's a bit stalled. Pennsylvania coming online. Connecticut's already in. Uh, Rhode Island's already in. Massachusetts, you're right, did uh, vote in uh, medical a couple years ago, and they voted in uh, recreational uh, adult use just this last fall. Vermont's in. Maine is in. So yeah, it's uh, it's cascading. I think I read recently that something like. Seventy-five percent of the U.S. population or more has access to to legal cannabis in either medical or recreational form at this point. Yeah, and it's de facto. We opened the show by saying it's basically in New York City. It's de facto pretty much decriminalized. I and mean, you have to be a knucklehead for for a policeman to pull you over for weed. Oh, yeah. And I think even then they just uh-huh. give you a ticket. It's like a, it's maybe like, if you're smoking naked, <laughs> right? If you're smoking <laughs> naked in the middle of Clinton Street a lot, yeah. <laughs> because I, it's just it's like the, it's like kind of like everybody's. Smoking weed in public, and the, and the police are just we don't whatever, not our problem anymore. So tell me what you do. What do you make? Because you're it's very specific. So you're not doing cookies, you're not doing brownies, you're not doing pastry. You're doing like candies. T- tell me more about what you're doing specifically. Yeah, well, you know, our company is a manufacturer, um, right? Infused product manufacturer. Um, our biggest seller is certainly our gummies. We make a variety of different fruit flavors. Uh, some have CBD. Some have um, herbal. Uh, additives that help with conditions like, you know, cough or sleep, that kind of thing. Uh, we also make caramels. Uh, we make chocolate products. We have mints. Uh, we make hard candies. We also make uh, hash. We make vape oil for vape pens. So we're pretty, pretty diversified. And you have a new product now called Wanacaps XR, which is a time-release cap. Is that right? Yes, sir. That's right. That's another uh, product that we have. We do that in conjunction with a an Israeli uh, oncology research uh, firm called Cannabix, and so we have the rights to be making that extended-release capsule, which is just a fabulous product for folks with a whole variety of ailments because it extends the, the impact of the cannabinoids from just a couple of hours out to 8 to 10 hours uh, at a very low level. So folks, for example, with uh, MS um, are finding that they can take many fewer cannabinoids with this extended release product and uh, Mm -hmm. that slow release into the body seems to help them a lot. Kind of like pain management, I think. If you stay on top of it, then it helps with a whole variety of things. 
I asked my previous guest, and I'm going to ask every guest, including you, about the dosing thing. Because this is kind of like the where it gets a little tricky. And I know it – so it, it depends certainly on the individual. Like my tolerance might be different than Henry sitting next to me. Um, you, you never know. Um, so how do you measure dosage? Because I, I, mean, I think everybody remembers Maureen Dowd, who's an op-ed columnist for the New York Times, who I don't think of as much of a partier. A while back, a couple of years ago, she did a piece where she went to Colorado, got some edibles, got a chocolate bar, I believe it was, checked into her hotel room. Good choice. <laughs> checked into her hotel room. And I don't know if she didn't follow or was unaware of the dosage, but she basically ate like half the chocolate bar or more and proceeded to basically trip her brains out for like 24 hours mm-hmm. pretty funny story for maureen dad because she's yeah you kind of picture her as like a buttoned up new york times editorial writer not a stoner but it was pretty hysterical so she's like terrified in her hotel room and paranoid and putting towels under the door and afraid of room service so how do, how do you do the dosage thing yeah well you know so one of the things about our company is that from day one we've always laboratory tested and we're very very precise about how much thc goes into every product so if you buy a wana product and it says that there's five milligrams in that hard candy, that's what's in there. Um, we, as all now of the edibles producers here in Colorado, you know, provide information, put it on the packaging that says, you know, start low and go slow. So, like you said, everybody is different, and um, everyone needs two or three experiences, I think, of just starting at a very low dose to see how well your body tolerates it and then finding a comfortable dose for whatever experience or condition you're trying to deal with. So I think the science and the maturity of the industry has gotten to a place where when people read the potency information on a Colorado-produced product, they can be very, very confident that uh, they're getting what the package says, and then they just need to take it low and figure out what their body wants. You, you say, your products are also available in Oregon, Nevada, Illinois. Is it legal in Illinois? I didn't realize Illinois was there. Uh. There's a medical program in Illinois. Okay. We have not opened up our operation there, but uh, we will be in the coming months. That's right. Gotcha. So I've also read, and I don't know if you would know this, because, again, you're a manufacturer. You're not like a, a guy with... 25 retail stores in Boulder. So you're kind of on the manufacturing end, selling to the people that sell the end users. But you must hear this anecdotally. Is Colorado now seeing revenue from uh, weed tourism where, you know, people are coming to Colorado specifically to buy edibles, partake in edibles and take them home? Yes, indeed. Yeah. I mean, during the during the peak tourism seasons in the winter and the peak of the summer, I mean, I've heard unconfirmed numbers that some stores will see half of their revenues coming from people uh, who are from out of state visiting their, their dispensaries. And so all, all you need to do is show up, show ID that you're over 18 years old and you're good to go. You got it. Bingo. But you're not allowed to ship out of the state. You have, so you have to go to Colorado or you have to go into the states where they have this, buy it and then split, right? That is correct. That's right. We, as a manufacturer, cannot ship over state lines. Uh, We can only sell to dispensaries. So we certainly get lots of folks from New York or Florida saying, boy, I'd love to try your product. Can you ship me some via UPS? But no can do. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's why I didn't ask you for samples. All right. Thanks so, so much. I'm sorry your wife couldn't make the interview. You you did a great job in her place. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, We're going to take a quick break. That was... John Whiteman, Wana Edibles, W-A-N-A Edibles, a Colorado manufacturing facility that supplies stores everywhere where it's legal in places like 
Oregon, Nevada, Illinois. Full range of products and their newest ones, that time release capsule called Wanacaps XR. Soon to be in a store near you. Thank you so much. Thanks, um, Michael. Thank you. I'll have to ask my engineer because he's, he's badly. Do we have our next guest on the phone? Not yet. Not yet. No. Okay. So we're going to actually, why don't we take a quick break then? Why don't we give our engineer a quick break? Dave, why, why don't you run the, uh, the spots for um, who's ever underwriting the show this week? And we'll see if we can't get our next guest on the phone. If not, we'll move along in an auspicious fashion. We'll be right back. Hey folks, Mike Kalameko here. Everybody knows that great cooking really starts with great ingredients, and these days we have so many options to choose from. Well, I go back to the Colavita family brand for years, and there really is a Colavita family behind this brand. I got their story long after I started using their products. Back in the mid-80s when I was the chef at the Ritz-Carlton here in New York City, one of the things you can do as a chef is order your own food. You do the purchasing, and we switched olive oils to Colavita. Uh, when I had my own restaurant down in Cape May, New Jersey, the Globe, for years, that's all we ever poured at the table. That's all I ever cooked with. And then when I started my PBS show in 1999, I thought, you know, if I'm going to look after underwriting and funders, why don't I go after products that I actually use at home, that I actually cook for my family with and in my restaurant with. I've been working with them for 15 years with the PBS series and now with Heritage Radio. The Colavita family goes back generations in Italy. They make their olive oil from great sourced olives, traceable sourced olives, just south of Rome in Molise province, Abruzzi, which is where my family hails from. Since then, their families moved here, so there's Colavita's living in Rome. Colavita's living in America. It's a great, trusted family brand. It's the olive oil I use, and I'd recommend you try it as well. Folks, welcome back. Michael Mecco here with mystery guest Henry in the studio with me. Um, (laughs) So we've got Peggy Moore. Peggy, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, yes, Peggy. I'm here. Hello. Peggy Moore owns Love's Oven, which is a home-style, small-batch cannabis bakery in Denver, Colorado. And you expanded. I think when you opened, you had a little, tiny 1,700-square-foot operation, and now you're over 8,500 square feet in six years. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So tell me about your journey. So you were a professional baker who, at some point, as this you know, legalization of uh, marijuana in Colorado came to be, and the edible thing came to be, moved into that space. What drew you to it? Well, first of all, I want to give a little shout out, shout out. Uh, to all your listeners and say, woohoo, happy 420. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, we're really excited um, yes. at Love's Oven to be part of the, this um, really new industry, and, and in many ways we're still a very new industry, even after having um, some sort of legalization in Colorado since 2009 now. So um, we've been out at this for a while. Um, and just to clear things up, so while I do bake occasionally in the bakery, I'm actually not the professional chef. Um, our executive chef is named uh, Hope from. I've read and, about her. Yes, uh, I've read about her. Yep. Yep, and she she's fabulous. Um, as are all the chefs in the in the bakery, and they are all professionally uh, trained. So we look for folks that are that have gone to culinary school, and we don't typically look for folks that have necessarily worked in the industry. Although that can be kind of a kind of a plus there, but 
we're really looking for people with really kind of very good pastry skills to bring into the operation. And one of the challenges, I think, for people, because I, I read up about you guys, one of the challenges for your kitchen workers, so I was a chef all my life. My wife is a baker, so we ran restaurants together, um, blah, blah, blah. But as, as chefs and as bakers, you, I, I encourage people to taste all the time. I really like to see kitchens where the cooks have those little spoons in their pockets and they're tasting, tasting, tasting all day long, tasting to adjust because, you know, you never know until you taste. But your, your people actually can't really do that, can they? Right. That would be against the rules in Colorado to, to do that. So we can do, when, we, when we're doing recipe experimentation, we can make non-infused versions of our products and try those. Um, and now we have, a, you know, quite a bit of cannabis infusion experience behind us. So we can guess at, you know, what, what the final product will taste like. But in order for us to actually taste one of our infused products, it's necessary for us to sell that product fully packaged as it would be for sale to a consumer to a store for resale back to us, and then we have to try it off-site somewhere. So it's kind of funny when we have our, our tasting parties because we have to go somewhere totally outside of the operation to try it out and then write down our tasting notes. So that's just part of, like, the weird... Yeah, I, I wanted to uh, ask you, is, is it frowned upon to have uh, your, your pastries taste like uh, marijuana? Well, you know, our concentrate, so we make a um, uh, just all-natural heat-infused butter for all of our butter-based products, and it's very, very highly concentrated. So while you may have the, a scant taste of cannabis in, in the product, it's very, really barely noticeable. And again, I heard you, you all talking to, to Sherry earlier today earlier on the show, and she mentioned, you know, she works to find those uh, flavor profiles that work with the cannabis, and that's exactly right. That's what we're looking for. So when when we're developing new recipes, we are looking at things like ginger, which works very nicely with, uh, with the scant taste of cannabis. So we're really looking to complement that taste. Oh, yeah, I see that. Ginger's a great one. Yes, it's wonderful. So the the butter that you're using, you're making that or you buy that? No, we make that ourselves. So we, we have an uh, in-house uh, process that happens right there in the bakery um, in uh, roasting pans, actually, where we actually take the top kind of the sweet leaf of the cannabis as well as small buds that we have procured from a couple of vendors that we work with here in Colorado. And we uh, heat that up, add some unsalted butter, and that simmers for a couple of hours. And that process, that initial process, actually um, takes the THC out of the cannabis plant. We then, with with a hydraulic... um, device, we extract the plant material from the butter, put that butter back on to simmer for about a day, which fully activates the THC in the butter. So what we're left with is this quadruple filtered green, highly potent butter that becomes the the basis for the cannabis in our recipes. So it's, 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 so once you have the plant material removed it's still another 24 hours at some kind of lowish temperature like 150 160 correct because you're not browning the butter you're not getting the milk solids to brown 
Right, right. And actually, what we're left with is, you know, a ghee product because all it's it is fat, typically. Okay. Yep. They, all right. They, they actually wash out. And so, and, and just so people are aware of this, you're not, I mean, brownies is like the cliche 1970s, yeah, pop brownies, blah, blah. <laughs> but you're doing croissant, eclairs, olive oil, bars, um, all kinds of stuff. And, and I know your, your pastry chef whose name escapes me, but you mentioned her, worked for Wolfgang Puck and also worked, I believe, for Thomas Keller in one of his operations, maybe Bouchon, one of those. That's correct. So she worked for both of those gentlemen um, at the restaurants in Las Vegas. And her name is uh, Chef Hope, by the way. Chef Hope, thank you. So, yep. And so we're doing quite a wide variety of products, and we're continually in kind of product research and development all the time. This is fast becoming a very uh, competitive um, part of the marijuana industry, the, the food piece of this. So lots of folks coming into the industry, lots of folks with new ideas. Um, so we've really taken, you know, the, the plain pastry or the plain brownie, as you talked about, and elevated that to, um, we do do a brownie product. It's called a turtle brownie. And it's uh, delicious. It's actually got caramel sauce and, and espresso and uh, pecans and things like that on top of it. So, you know, people people love that little product. It's a great thing to, to go with some nice uh, vanilla bean ice cream or something. But we um, do, do a wide variety of pastry-type products. We also have caramels. Uh, we are introducing a pastille, a line of pastille type of confections, um, kind of our, our ode to the to the gummy bear, which we're not going to make gummies, gummy bears, but we'll do some kind of a nice French uh, confection there. Um, we're looking at a line of beverages and as well as a line of topicals. It's like like because you could do this, the skin absorbs it. Correct. Correct. Dosage. This is my question for everybody because it seemed to be like in the early days it was kind of like that was like the the mystery question. And I know it varies from person to person. Um, My son and I will watch rap videos and I'll see these guys with these big spliffs just all day long. You know, that who's that kid out of Pittsburgh? Uh, Wiz Khalifa. I mean, and, and my son's like, oh, yeah. Dad, these guys they have, they have tolerance. You know, they get nice. And man, I have two of that stuff. I'm like, I'm, I'm like horizontal. But yeah. so I know it depends on the person. But what's the general understanding of of a of a correct dosage for an adult? Does it go by body weight? Does it go by anything like that? Or is it just ten milligrams? Because I keep hearing that number bandied about. Well, so ten milligrams is the number that was somewhat randomly selected by the state of Colorado to constitute a, a single serving of, mar- of a marijuana-infused product for the recreational market here. Now, I will tell you that um, f- for some people, and I heard it mentioned earlier, sometimes folks need more than that. So there may, may be people that, you know, have a high level of tolerance, and they may try, you know, three or four 10-milligram servings before they feel an effect. But there's many people, and myself, I would put myself in this category, who I, anytime I try a marijuana product, including my own for the first time, I'm going to take maybe two or three milligrams because I, I don't use the product products very often. And also the way um, that the cannabis works through your body can vary depending on the concentrate that was used and the infusion me- method and all of that. So I start with... Two to three milligrams, I'll wait an hour and a half or two. And if I haven't felt anything, then I'll try a little bit more. You but, sound very patient. To... 
<laughs> what was that? Very patient. Very conservative. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you've got to have a lot of planning here. So one of my favorite things to do is to try a little bit of um, uh, marijuana-infused product, my, my edibles, before I go on a hike. And so if I know I'm going on my hike at 10 a.m., say, I will, I will take that little 2 to 3 milligrams probably starting at 8 o'clock. So for you, 2 to 3 milligrams is enough. That's fine. Yep. Even though the standard dosing is 10. Right. Right. So the and the standard that's just what's designated as a standardized serving size. There's many manufacturers in Colorado that actually make their products in a five milligram um, version. There's a one manufacturer that's making uh, some butter mints, and those are in a two and a half milligram version. And then you can put multiples of those in a package. But you know this micro, this whole idea of micro dosing is really kind of starting to uh, leave its imprint in the industry. So I think it's here to stay. And explain this one more time because it sounded kind of Byzantine. I'm sure it's just like the laws in Colorado, but literally you have cameras in your kitchen, and your your the, the, your chefs are not allowed to taste anything while they're working. That's correct. And, and, and fact, in order for you to taste nice. things, you have to ship it out to a third party and have them ship it back. Is that what I heard you say? Well, so we ship it out to one of the retail stores. So we're a wholesale manufacturer. Right. right. And so we ship it to one of the retail stores, and then we go in and buy the product back from the store. Crazy. That's crazy. That's just just how it turned out legally. That's how they got it to the legislature, and everyone said, yeah, that's fine. And somebody signed it, and it's official. That's how it works. Yeah, and I would expect that at some point down the road that'll change. In examining some of the other states' laws, uh, Oregon, for for example, does allow you to internally um, manifest, is what they call it, a package of product for purposes of R and D. I don't know if they allow consumption on site, but they don't have to go. You don't have to go to the store and buy a pack. Thank you, Peggy Moore. Continued success. I know you're selling – your products can be found in over 100 stores throughout Colorado. Oh, over 400 stores in Colorado. Congratulations on your success. Oh, thank you so much, guys. Enjoy thank, your day. Thank you, thank you. Love's Oven is the name of the bakery of 400 stores in Colorado. Huge success. We're getting a sense of the scope of this thing. Um, we have another guest coming up in a minute, my engineer, David, who is – I'm killing him today. This is we don't we don't okay okay so let's go let let's let's get let's have in studio let's do this let's let's turn it around here for one second here and we'll have Bill Samuels Jr. coming in um, this is not going to be anything about 420 day this is going to be about a brand let's let's say I go to the Village Vanguard right they love me they go to the Village Vanguard I sit at the bar and they say what do you want to drink there's a drink minimum I my go to when I'm out bourbon is Maker's Mark and now I'm meeting the man. Who built the brand, sir? How are you? I'm great. You'll need headphones so you can hear yourself. Give us one second. <laughs> that's, that's a new concept. Yeah, well, it's, it's a radio concept. <laughs> so tell me about the story. It's amazing. So you guys launched Maker's Mark, which is this. I mean, everything from the label to the wax, the red wax dripping on the top. It's like this iconic brand, like like Jack Daniels, like others in America. You guys launched in 1958. Is that the story? Well, sort of launched in 50. Actually, it's 59, uh, and I was a kid, so I didn't have a whole lot to do with it other than just hang around and watch Mom and Dad work their magic. Uh, this was a way to get Dad out of the house after the Second World War. He Serious? Was, yeah, he was pestered. Well, uh, Mom ran the farm during the war, and Dad was going to come back and be a gentleman farmer, and she decided she didn't need him. 
And so she offered him an opportunity to get a job after the war. He didn't want a job. So he finally wanted to get back into business. We've owned and operated distilleries in Kentucky since the 1780s and made some pretty lousy whiskey during that period of time. And he wanted to see before he went to that great distillery in the sky if he could make a little bit of something that was really good. I mean, so, it's a simple concept. Make a bourbon that actually tastes good. So this is funny because we live, I mean, a, a lot of the younger audience members, a lot of the kids that are hanging out around Roberta's and the live in this neighborhood, mm-hmm. kind of came of age in this time of this wonderful moment for American spirits. Yeah. I mean, now we are just celebrating bourbons and whiskeys and ryes. And it's like every time I walk yeah. into a store, there's a, another 50 foot of shelf space devoted to this. But going back historically, after the Prohibition and before World War II and through World War II, most of the whiskey that was being made was horrible. It, that's an understatement. That's right? So, because it, 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 it was no oak aging? What, what was, how was no, it? Being- well, uh, the oak aging was mandated after Jeez. Prohibition. But, you know, we had a second prohibition when Roosevelt shut us down for the war effort. I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, we were down from 1943 to 47. What was that? What was the story with the legalization? There was no production? Well, they needed grain, and, and, the they, and they wanted us to make industrial alcohol for the war effort, which we couldn't do because the stills weren't high enough to distill at 190 proof. So that was a, that's what we call a government miscue. But uh, uh, we were shut down four and a half years. I didn't realize that. Man, oh, man. That's and we have made our share. My grandmother, who was the most outspoken in the family, when uh, Jim Beam asked her once, he was our next-door neighbor, she asked Grandma if she'd like a drink of whiskey, and she said, no, thank you, Colonel. That shit will blow your ears off. <laughs> and and uh, and that's how I got my indoctrination of what we did for a living. I was four years old when she made that announcement. So what was what was the state of bourbon like then? Tell, tell me why it was so unrefined, so undrinkable. Because we hear about it. This. Was, I mean, it was unrefined for a very simple reason. First, it was the Scotch Irish that created mountain whiskey out of corn. Okay, and that's because. To get the free land, they had to raise the native grain. And once you've raised the native grain, which west of the Allegheny Mountains is corn, uh, you have to have something to do with it. And the Scotch-Irish knew what to do with it. And their market was not very sophisticated. The last thing that the pioneers wanted was sissy whiskey. And so they got a mouthful. And uh, the early whiskeys were very big, very bold, very bitter. Uh, And since it was Scotch-Irish families making them they just kept on making them and we were a prime example we did a 170 years of pretending the customer didn't change and it just finally blew up and uh and the guy that really blew it up was joe kennedy Hmm. Uh, Uh, remember right after prohibition we didn't have any no of the kentucky boys had any whiskey so we had to go through rebuild the distilleries and then age the whiskey in newly charred barrels, which doubled our production cost as opposed to any other uh, type of whiskey in the world. And Joe Kennedy's sitting over. They didn't have prohibition in Scotland or Canada. And he's bringing all this imported whiskey in. It was a lot better than what we were making. And, and that really finished us off. Finished us all off. Gotcha. So when was the turnaround? When was the push for quality? When did that That is... Uh, this goes to sound like blowing smoke, but it really... You ask any of the Kentucky distillers who turned it around, it was my mother and father. Because in the last four years, there's been over 1,700 craft distilleries started up, all of them wanting to make 
the next makers. Between 1945 and 1995, there was only one craft distillery startup, and it was ours. For 50 years? For 50 years. It was a struggle. So talk about how how you make it, because there's these terms these days like organic or natural or small batch or artisan or bandied about so much they've become almost meaningless. Give me a sense of an average day at Maker's Mark, because you are still limiting the production size to, what is it, 1,000 gallons? What's a, what's a batch? Uh, the batch is 19 barrels. 19 barrels. Mm-hmm. That's how you, So everything's done in 19-barrel batches. Yeah. What size barrels are these? 54 gallons. 54 gallons. And it's American oak? Yeah, it's American oak. Toasted, medium? Well, it's a little more important than that. The big There's about five or six things that... If the people really interested in well-made whiskey, it would be, where does the water come from? Okay, the water needs to come from the site, and it needs to come from underground springs. And the best limestone water is the limestone shelf in Kentucky. That's why 95% of it's made there, okay? The second thing is the grain. The grain and the water should come from the same soil, okay? So it's important for the distillers to support their local farmers— so that they can be healthy, they can build bigger and better elevators as this industry grows. Uh, the bourbon boom has been an enormous boom for the farmers in central Kentucky. And that's because we all prefer to buy from local farm. We've had the same farm family has grown all our grain locally for 60 years. Who knew? Since we started. It's, it's, nah, who knew? Well, and the yeast is important, and I mean, there's a lot of little no, things. Not, I, we have wine gets here all the time, and it's funny we talk about limestone, but I never really thought of the water being that germane to the finished product, but it's oh, like, yeah. hello. I mean, that's like the main ingredient. It's one of the main ingredients. So, yeah. Why do you think, what's the effect of the limestone on the water? Well, it's the limestone and the shale. The limestone gotcha. shelf that we have, instead of solid limestone, we have layers, and it's about eight or nine inches of limestone and five or six inches of shale and then limestone and shale. And what you get, because the shale supports, uh, the underground water flows through that. The faster the water runs in contact with the limestone, the harder the water. And the harder water makes better whiskey. Very simple. That's cool. I'm learning as I go. And, and, and it would make sense that the corn raised on that same water yeah. from that same aquifer mm-hmm. would imbue, imbue the same thing. To, to be considered bourbon, you explain the law to me, is it has to be at least 50% or more of corn? 51% corn. 51% corn. Yeah, what the, other, what uh, a, these laws were just written coming out of Prohibition. And there's a lot of them that were fairly new. The, the big one that was new was the mandatory of the barrels being uh, 54 gallons and uh, newly charred American oak. Before that, very little bourbon was actually stored in new barrels. What was it stored in? Uh, they reused them. They you know, stored them first time, and then they reused them four right. or five times, and then they right. finally wore out. So, right, there would be less and less effect each, with each successive usage. And the guy that mandated that was the guy that wrote the law. And his name was Wilbur Mills. He was a new congressman from Arkansas. And guess where all the American oak comes from? 
<laughs> it, it was called an Arkansas stimulus package. <laughs> that's seriously. Yeah, that's where the O comes from. Is Arkansas? That's well, it crazy. comes from the Ozarks. Most of it yeah, comes yeah, from yeah. the Ozarks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all the Coopers were in Arkansas, and he was looking after his buddies. I remember Wilbur Wills, actually. He's, I thought he, you might. He was around for a while, I actually remember. <laughs> he was a rather controversial, he was a colorful gentleman, let's just put it In that his way. early days, he was a very serious lawyer. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. All right. So what, what other grains are you using, if you are, besides corn in your blend? Uh, we use 70% corn because we like okay. the sweetness from the gotcha. corn. Gotcha. That's where we're getting that, that round, sweet notes. That's exactly right. And we use red winter wheat, which is a ground cover in Kentucky. It's very soft. It makes wonderful bread. And uh, we threw the rye out. Nothing wrong with rye, but Dad was looking for soft and not sour. And if you compare uh, yeah. rye bread to wheat bread, it's, it's that same. Yeah, rye can be kind of a little more edgy, a little more acid, a little more sour. Well, it's not sour in a bad way. It's, it's more of a cinnamon, really, sort of at the mid-side points of the tongue. He didn't want that. He wanted all forward. Uh, he had a really simple idea. He said, people have been drinking bourbon for 200 years because we always told them it was an acquired taste. If you just, if you'll keep sticking with us, we know it tastes like shit, but if you just keep sticking with us, you'll learn to like it. And he didn't believe that. And so he said, people like stuff that tastes good. And so, and stuff that tastes good is predominantly in the front half of the tongue. So the objective was to move the flavor forwards no worries. Uh, and uh, uh, that was the whole objective. Move it forward. Get rid of all the sours. That meant the rye had to go. So how how how, how long are you aging? Cause do, you, do you have, I, I should know this, but I, I, I don't. You have the one brand that we know that's iconic. It's that kind of squarish bottle with the dipped top, with the wax that's dripping down that's red. Do you have... Other high, like another end that's like a smaller batch, or you know what I mean? Because nowadays you see people sort of branching out and doing no, this. What we have, we make one whiskey one way. Period. Uh, we do bottle Maker's Mark. It's uh, six to six and a half years old. We have a small bottling with at the barrel proof unfiltered, but it's Maker's Mark. It's just at a higher so proof unfiltered. Barrel proof unfiltered. And, and then before I retired, I wanted to have a legacy because I could tell my son was more fascinated with the contributions of his grandparents than he was mine. <laughs> and so he took my name off the label first thing. <laughs> and, and so I created Maker's 46, which starts with basic makers. And we, uh, working with the Cooper, we're able to insert seared French oak staves. Ten of them for a matter of three months. And that's a finishing process. That's that's not additional maturation. And it it really ramps up the yumminess like you wouldn't believe. Because you're getting all those notes that that toasted oak's going to get. All the caramel yeah. and all the... Caramel, uh, vanilla. Vanilla, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you're not getting any more of the acid because we only make it during the cool months. Now we got a cellar. We can actually make it year-round. How big is your facility now? It looks like it did in 1953 when Dad and I went to courthouse and he bought it for $35,000. <laughs> but it ain't the same. It's not close to the same. But we're still making 18 barrel batches. We're still getting all our water from the, you know, from the same place. The con- we spent millions on water conservation. We've got this incredible relationship with our farmer who started with 150 acres of row crops. He's now got 17,000. 
so but it's you know it's been incremental over 60 years uh we've never had growth more than 12 percent. we've never had growth less than 10 percent. so well, that's it, a dream it's that's... been a managed uh but you got to be a disciplinarian to do that and the focus the reason for the discipline is so as as we make a little more we can always make sure that what we make is the same as what we had before got you consistent 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 you're sold in every state in America, 50 states? We're in all states. and International. Are, are finally right at the point of being able to provide some makers for the international markets. We've held back because we supply existing customers first, and the demand has been greater than supply for the last 20 years. Yeah, and you've... And I, I, so you've still kept that 12% pace even with this sort of modern... Well, that's an odd year. It's, it's always over 10. Okay, okay, okay. Great story. Great, great. I mean, it's a great time to be in spirits, too, right? Because this is real. It's like, I'm trying to think of like the mid-aughts when I began to notice. That that's, Amer- that's about right. Right? Yeah. Americans began to sort of re- revisit this idea of, you know, uh, we pay all this money for Armagnac or Cognac yeah. or these I- imported things. And we have this tradition here of, of, of making these spirits in this way that's sort of artisan, like you're describing it. Like, I, it never occurred to me the water in the corn and all that would affect it. But now it, it totally does. Why wouldn't it? If I could do one thing, it would be able to reach back and pull my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, and all of them out of the grave and come have one dinner and have them see how popular this Kentucky spirit has become. Right? Yeah. That'd What's be the so growth cool. been in the industry overall, do we know? Well, the growth, uh, there's another growth that we're seeing. The most phenomenal tourist uh, attraction in the Midwest of the country is now visiting distilleries. It's the Kentucky Bourbon Trail. They're wearing us out. And the really nice thing about that is we've always been good friends. So it was an easy thing to work together when the people started. We had to get organized because, you know, the ones we weren't aggravating because we're all in the country pretty much. and it's just become phenomenal. Last year, we had over one million uh, people from outside Kentucky visit the Bourbon Trail, and it's grown about fifteen percent. And Tennessee's famous for sour mash. Tennessee has its own distinctive style, and fortunately, well, there's one brand built that, and it was Jack Daniels. But Period. there's there's other Tennessee whiskeys, and I think it's kind of cool that America is the only region in the world that has more than one whiskey region, one whiskey style. Tennessee whiskey, Kentucky bourbon, and now there's a big effort in Maryland to reestablish rye, which is the home of American rye whiskey, and and that would give us three. Why Maryland specifically? That's where it started. That's where it started. Yeah. Rye was the crop? Well, that was the native grain, and then when they came over the mountains, Indians had corn. And so they switched to what was available. Right, right, right. Makes sense. What is Tennessee Sour Mash? Just in a nutshell, what are, what are we looking at there? What's that, what's that word mean? Oh, I, it's, it, it means a lot to me because I went to Vanderbilt Law School, and my job every Friday at noon was to go visit the chairman of Jack Daniels, who was one of my father's best friends. And I actually learned from him. He was my mentor. And his father was a man named Lem Motlow, who still got his name on the door, on the the bottle of Jack Daniels. Mm. And Lem Motlow's uncle was Mr. Jack himself, who never married. So the company went down his mother's side of the family, the Motlows. And Hep was, uh, uh, he told me all the dark secrets of the family. And one of them 
was the activated charcoal filtration process that really does give it a distinctive taste. And it was all so they didn't have to call it a bourbon because when we came out of Prohibition, Tennessee was late coming out of Prohibition, and we were all getting our brains beat out. And he said, ooh, I don't want to be associated with those guys. So he actually went to Washington, got permission. If he filtered his whiskey to a certain degree, he wouldn't have to call it bourbon. That's how that happened. And he, and he didn't know how to make a filter. So he ended up making a filter that added flavor rather than extracting flavor, <laughs> and people liked it. That's, that's crazy. A, that's and I heard that from the horse's mouth. That's the Jack Daniels story. Yeah, that's true. That charcoal filter bit mm-hmm. that added flavor, and that, that's, that's hysterical. So how many employees now in the company? Well, it grows every day. I've been retired six years. When I left, it was about 90. It's over 180 right now. And, and, uh, and we keep hiring them. And it's just, it, it keeps growing. He's got, uh, my son's got another 30 coming in. because the Dale Chihuly, the artist in Seattle. The last artist, yeah. Well, he's doing his international exhibit at our place this summer. Whoa! And and that we don't know what that's going to do, but we think it's going to be an earthquake. I, oh yeah, huge. Yeah, <laughs> I'm with Henry. Huge. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's going to be and that's that's crazy. You're going to be just get get ready for. And that's the best part of being retired because my son is. I mean, I thought I was pretty good and left things in pretty good place. Well, he's taken it to a whole new level in not much time. How many? What's total production in cases, bottles, or however you measure it? And well, I know it grows every again, year. Again, I don't get as much information as I used to, but uh, this year will be around 2 million cases for the world. And we're about 15% outside the United States. If it weren't for the shortage, we'd probably be 30 or 40% outside the U.S. Shortage of? Of supply. So you're just maxed out on... Well, we, we, we've we actually, uh, uh, starting next year, we're actually going to have a little more than the 11% that we've, you know, that we've had up to this point. What limit supply? Well, it's, it's a six-year lag lead time. On the, on the stocks that you have in age. Yeah, and if we yeah. have to build a facility to do, we, it's, that's six a couple years, years. Right. So it's six plus two and a half. Right. And you know how fickle people are. They might change what they like. And, you you know, can you imagine investing $100 million in a new little craft distillery? And they, that's what they cost. And the warehouses and all. And then somebody say, ooh, I think I like gin. <laughs> yeah, maybe vodka becomes popular again, the, the, the alcohol of the 90s. It's a great family story. I mean, who? so it, it's funny. It's, it's, you're such a, you, you really are the brand. I know when, when I go... Anywhere I'm traveling, or my famous favorite jazz club, the Village Vanguard. I don't, I don't want their house poor, but I'll ask for makers because I just know it's consistent, yeah. it's delicious, it and it's it's the same all the time. And that's 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 what was very important to Dad: consistent, delicious, and uh, tune the noise out. What's the cask strength proof on the smaller batch? The one you have with those staves? And that, not, yours doesn't have the staves in it, does it? Uh, Forty-six does. Makers forty-six does. 46. But the cast strength, we enter our whiskey at at a lower proof, which means we need more barrels and more barrel rack houses. So it's a hell of a lot more expensive. But it really helps soften the whiskey. And so if you would try Makers cast strength, what you'll notice is the viscosity is a little higher because when we filter to get the consistency with our classic makers. We take out a lot of the fatty acids out of solution, and that's a lot of the texture. So uh, you will really like the added texture. 
and the fact that it's for a cast strength bourbon reasonably low it's between 111 and 112 proof i mean it 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 does not blow your ears off but it will uh you got to work your way into it how do you if you were to recommend and i know this is maybe not your place or you might not want to do it but um i love to drink bourbons neat Mm -hmm. but with the cast strength it's getting really strong drop of water does that defeat the purpose or okay people think they have to drink at, at full alcohol strength that's really a bad idea. One of the reasons that we have the high strength is that if we don't filter it, we have all these solids in solution. Alcohol is an al- is a flavor carrier. Flavor is solids. If you're going to send a bottle up to Nome, Alaska in the middle of the winter, uh, you want to make sure that all the solids don't precipitate out if it's been left on the loading dock for a day or two. And so uh, it's perfectly... Good, and I recommend that you, that you put at least one good size ice cube in a glass of cast strength or Maker's ninety five, which is ninety four proof. Uh, and what you get with the uh, with all the additional uh, fatty acids, you still get the texture, and the dilution is so minor, and it just tastes good. Plus the fact all our taste buds start to get anesthetized with alcohol over 70 proof. So when you get over 100, uh, irrespective of how tough you are, it's... it's uh, Right, the ability to... you got to work at it. Right, the perception's kind of going. Who decides? So fatty acids, that's so... So in part of your filtration, you're losing fatty acids, which gives you... Which, yeah, unfortunately, it, it, that's the trade-off. But they, but they concentrate so many of the solids. If we didn't, they would precipitate out. Great story. Thanks. You came in straight from the airport. Which airport did you fly into? LaGuardia. Thanks for making it. That's not it's an pleasure. easy hike. Thanks so, so, so much. Bill Samuels, Jr., Maker's Mark, Chairman, Emeritus, Family Business. His son's taking it. Does your son have sons or daughters? He has, he has one son and one daughter. Okay. So we're going to see Maker's Mark not going anywhere for the next couple of generations. Thank goodness. Thanks so much for coming in. Welcome to New York City. Um, enjoy your stay here. Folks, we're off for a couple of weeks. Heritage takes spring break. I'll be back in May with, um, I think, my first show. I've got Shane McBride, the chef from Balthazar. Um, well, he's all of Keith McNally's restaurants. We're going to talk about the new book about Balthazar. Stay tuned for that. See you in two weeks. Bye-bye. Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Please.